Hi, everyone. Welcome to Such a Good Feeling, where I talk to creatives and performers about those magical moments in their lives where small things changed everything. Today's guest uh, is a friend of mine, uh, Has wears many hats, currently wearing what I would say is a blue <laughs> sort of woolly hat um, with some kind of... Yes, no, I can see it now. It's definitely a blue woolly hat. Uh, I think it's important everyone knows. Um, he's, uh, predominantly a drummer and has worked with amazing people like Kylie, Will Young, Duffy, Girls Aloud. Uh, he's also known as a bit of a philosopher, a bit of a therapist, a uh, bit of a stand-up comedian, and, uh, does a very, very good impression of Michael McDonald if he's had enough whiskey. Um, so, uh, welcome Tom Meadows. Thank you. Thank How you. Doing? How's, I'm how's, all right. how's your world today? Uh, it's good. It's very odd to see you, A, via a screen, and B, not talking about an arrangement or or how I messed up in the last day. Well, it's very rare that you mess up, <laughs> but I have got headphones on, which is normally what Tom's vision of me is true, sat actually. in a rehearsal studio where I'm sort of sat at the sofa looking at him. And normally there's uh, an arrangement in a rehearsal room where there's some screens that are around him, yeah. which uh, the later on in the day... Um, it sort of changes the perspective of how much I can mm. see of you and how much you can see of me. Yeah, and whose head is 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 uh, <laughs> juxtaposed on my body? Yeah, uh, which it, is quite it, an odd one, given the sun and the shining against the perspective. Exactly, exactly. For anyone that doesn't know, that the, the drum screens in a rehearsal room are uh, are not a cage to keep the drummer in. They are <laughs> just to deflect um, from uh, lots of live microphones and lots of loud cymbals. Mm. Um, but uh, nothing can really contain you, I don't think, <laughs> ever. I, I, I do spill o- over the edges. You do, and why would why why would we want to contain you? <laughs> so um, this podcast is about those moments that, that came together to really put you in rooms like the one where you're sat opposite me behind plexiglass. Um, mm. So I always like to start with the idea of just music and before you got to a point where you understood what your musical tastes were and you were in a position where you could go out and start buying records and start kind of curating mm. it um, in the Meadows household growing up, what kind of music was around in your early years? What your, what, what did you grow up around from your family? Uh, well, so my mum was uh, a classical singer um i say was in that she's not she's retired not that she's not with us anymore um and so there was an awful lot of uh opera and 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 that kind of you know uh, that kind of thing which is probably why i love strings so much which is why strings just you know do it for me um and a great string arrangement is basically is will will, will sell me on on anything even the worst song if he's got a great string arrangement, I'm in. Um, and I started playing the violin um, when I was four. And I, I, actually, you know, when, when we were talking about this leading up and I was thinking about stuff, I think my whole career, if you can call it that, has been based on a series of sort of sliding doors moments. Um, you know, so I played the violin and I learned on a, I learned the Suzuki method um, when I was at school, which is basically like a, like they, they give you like a cornflakes packet and a ruler stuck on the end. And, you know, you're all these sort of tiny people um, learning how to sort of make the shapes before you move on to this tiny little violin. So um, played violin uh, for a few years and my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was an antiques dealer. 
and she had this like 200 year old violin um beautiful i mean way way <laughs> overqualified for the noise that i was actually making and um had this incredible case this sort of walnut like coffin case um and we used to go to school and we'd put our violins our, our cases by this cupboard we'd stack them up by this cupboard and um one day on top of this cupboard was a timpani and one day the timpani fell off the cupboard and onto my violin smashed it to matchsticks which is probably what it should have been a long time ago and with the insurance money from that i bought my first drum kit that's amazing so so like there's your first sort of you know uh, happy accident um fate serendipity uh whatever you want to call it um and yeah and from that moment on i played drums not violin really um so yeah there you go <laughs> like that's you know so that i mean firstly I suppose it's a really, it's a bit of a toss up really. Cause I mean, violin, let us just say violin played by a child is a challenging noise to have around the house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, but also then drums uh, is also yeah. an, an equally. Also, an equally not ideal. Well, thing. yeah. So, you know, my parents would, would be sort of, um, you know, I'd be up in the loft with, with my drum kit and playing and um, uh, I'd come down and my mum or dad would say, we've been we've been shouting at you for the last hour I'm like, well as you've probably heard i've been playing something very loud if you need me come up pop your head through the loft and tell me to shut up or whatever but you know but they were obviously uh, yeah. encouraging enough to to, <coughs> to to see that you you had an idea i mean even before you got the drum kit were you someone that was kind of interested in rhythm or were you doing that thing where like i mean i remember when i was a kid i mean i'm not a drummer mm. but you know i had a pair of drumsticks and i'd sort of just mm. kind of play play sort of drums and kind of knock the stuffing out of pillows and stuff like that did you do all that kind of thing yeah i think i was always sort of tapping always uh, always doing stuff like that and you know so the thing about it the the, the thing about the drums uh, particularly was I feel like I understood song form innately. Um, you know, look, there are so many examples, you know, when you get into the studio or, or whatever it is of, you know, songs that have odd turnaround bars or, you know, will we'll throw you slightly. But if we're talking about the classic sort of, you know, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, bridge, chorus out, there was always a sort of innate un understanding, that innate pull of where to pick up, where to come down, uh, where where to change voices that I had with the drums. That I, I even though um, I understood and was learning harmony and theory as part of playing the violin, it was very much learning as opposed to understanding. And I think with drums, yes, I was tapping on stuff, I was tapping on tables, which I don't really do now, actually. But back then, I was always doing. Um, so I think there was always something. Um, and, you know, if you want to talk about, yes, it is very challenging. I do understand that as, as a parent. Actually, nothing more challenging than, than the recorder. The recorder oh, yes. should be banned. That's <laughs> what I'm dealing with right now. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, playing the drums gave me a, a, a very broad uh, understanding in lots of other areas of life. You know, maths, for example. Maths was always a real struggle for me, but but suddenly... Um, playing the drums, I understood about fractions because you're 
dividing the bar up into quarter notes or eighth notes or 16th notes or 32nd notes. You know, suddenly these things had a, had a, a visual for me because I'm thinking about it in terms of playing the drums, not just, you know, if Johnny takes a quarter of a pie, you know, it's like, no, I'm thinking about a quarter note. Um, so, yeah, a- absolutely. From, from you know, uh, my mum, I think, always wanted me to, to, to do something, even if it was just a hobby, she wanted me to do something musical because that's what she had done and she loved it and it gave her so much in her life. Um, but then when I found the drums, <clears throat> it was sort of, for me, it was, there's no, there's no going back here. This is it, you know. Um, Did you obviously got a drum kit? How were you mm. teaching yourself? Were you having, were you actually teaching yourself or were you having lessons or? So I did teach myself for sort of maybe a year or two. And, um, and, and how do you, I mean, was that literally listening to like, were you, mm. what was your process to actually teach yourself how to play drums? So I was playing along to records and getting it wrong a lot. Um, okay. But, but I'd sort of, you know, <laughs> I learned beats then that I'm still playing now, but I'm just earning money from, Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, and so I would just sort of put those over, uh, because, you know, the music that I was into back then, um, uh, bands like uh, Dire Straits, uh, Springsteen, The Stones, um, things that you could just play, you could just play those beats, you know, one or, one or two beats and you could be playing along. Um, but what happened is that I decided in a very contrived way, what, what music has borne more legends in terms of drums than any other, and that's jazz music. Mm-hmm. So I sort of, I, I, I forced myself to listen to, to jazz music, and that's how I, you know, in, in terms of what I was doing in the, in the early days of having lessons and, and stuff, it was jazz music. That's what I played. You know, um, I went to a weekend arts college in Kentish Town um, when I was about 14, 15, and was studying with uh, the great trumpeter Ian Carr. Um, um, it was like a fusion big band. And, you know, with me in that, in that band was David Kumu, um, Tom Herbert, um, you know, so, some of the great sort of producers and, and uh, writers now, you know, not necessarily just playing jazz, but um, that was my thing, really. I forced myself to listen to jazz music. Was that the first band or for, for the first experience of you being playing drums with other musicians then? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I do, I do remember I was, I depped for my drum teacher, uh, in the school production of, um, Bugsy Malone. Okay. Um, first and perform- I was, so kind of first performance, would you say? Yeah. Uh, but well, but I was gutted cause I only did the rehearsals and then he came in and did the shows. Oh, right. So I was, I was sort of the repetiteur, um, <laughs> for that, for that thing. And, you know, I, I remember them being absolutely gutted that I couldn't do the performance. You know, there was something in me that really wanted to, to, to perform. Um, but we, we, we did have a great music department, a great music department. And, um, uh, her name was uh, Mrs. Roberts, Diane Roberts. She was uh, she was really into getting us to um, form small groups, and you know it, she allowed us to be in, in the music room and and the and the little sort of sub rooms of the music department whenever we wanted. Much to the chagrin of my biology teacher, I remember. But um, you know, I'm a musician, not a biologist, so it's fine. Um, 
so you know that that I I was performing with sort of school groups and things like that, but in terms of actually um, creating and and thinking about it seriously, yeah, you know, we, weekend arts college was probably yeah that that first experience. So you pretty much you sounds like I mean apart from obviously the happy accident of the violin getting smashed, you mm. you know you you kind of knew were, were you. Were you looking at other drummers? Were you looking at people like when Top of the Pops was on? Were you looking at the drummer? Or did you have an idea of the kind of yeah. drummer you liked and who you wanted to be? Definitely. But, you know, as I said, I, I, I very much sort of got myself into to a jazz frame of mind. So I sort of, having gone from listening to those bands that I mentioned before, I suddenly became this weird sort of snob of, you know, I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to play jazz music. So I was listening to, Elvin Jones and Philly Joe Jones and Max Roach and um, those kinds of people, um, as opposed to like <clears throat> whoever was on top of the pops. Um, I had a sort of vague awareness, but, you know, I'd be walking around school listening to stuff on my Walkman, like, you know, the yellow jackets and, you know, basically being a twat. Um, but, but, but that's, that's what I was into, you know, th- those kind of things. Um, and, and again, really, <clears throat> you know, in terms of the next sort of um, moment, it would be taking over from my drum teacher, a guy called Andrew Missinger, who, who was who was a real mentor, a real hero of mine. Like he was the he was the reason why I wanted to grow, like the goatee that I had. I mean, bear in mind this was what like nineteen ninety three, mm. four. Um, you know, a goatee, the sort of backwards uh, Baker boy hat. Like he he was the he he was the height of cool for me. It was the it was the birth of acid jazz, and um, the, you know that's where I was going into. And I took over from him when he left the school. I took over teaching uh, drums uh, when I was doing A levels. <clears throat> um, so like Monday to Wednesday, I was you know doing A level English and you know yada yada. And then Thursday and Friday, um, Thursday afternoon. And Friday all, all day, I was allowed in the staff room. Uh, how, and how, how old were you with them when you were teaching? Uh, so I was 17. I mean, that's no, no, quite something to kind of mm. go from learning how to play on your own to like, and then to be a teacher at 17. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you, as you know, Steve, um, uh, uh, talking is not a problem for me. <laughs> um, so uh, communicating, I think, you know, I, I love teaching. Um, and it's something that I, that I, haven't done as much recently for obvious reasons um but i do love it and i know that i will get back into it you know i i I feel a great amount of joy from seeing somebody go from not understanding to vaguely understanding to understanding and then mastery um uh it's it's probably the closest in a way that i will get uh, uh to maybe not being an artist as such but you know being somebody in my own right as opposed to working for or with, you know, it's like, this is me. The stuff that I'm telling you is stuff that I believe. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm not having to compromise. I'm not having to dilute that because I'm working with other people. You know, yeah. this is this is me teaching. Um, so I did love it. And I didn't really think, I didn't really think much of it. You know, as in it, it didn't, I wasn't like, oh, wow. You know, I'm 17 and I'm teaching. I just did it. And I started teaching um well, actually, we'll get onto that. But you know, my my teaching uh, uh, career, my my teaching line started at seventeen, and you know, just sort of continued really. Um, 
And how does that, obviously, you're still drumming, you're still playing. I mean, mm. you presumably you start to get into playing with different musicians and, yeah. you know, bands. Yeah. So, And, and, and it was, uh, I'm guessing it was, you know, you mentioned it before, it was around that time of, you know, Giles Peterson and Acid Jazz yeah. and Talking Loud and yeah. Young Disciples oh, and all that yeah, stuff, which, which is, was your wheelhouse totally, right? And it's all I wanted to do. You know, I didn't, I didn't think, you know, I'd see, so, you know, back then, um, it, it was the, it was the, the, the era of sort of take that boy's own, you know, and I'd see um, the drummers doing the big shows and I'm, I'm, I'm told those, and it, it, it didn't really make me go, oh, I want to do that. Um, but funnily enough, the drummer would take that uh, back in the day, the first band, um, I had a few lessons with. And he asked if, while he was on tour with Take That, I could take over in the band that he was in on Acid Jazz. Yeah. So it was like, perfect. You go off and do that thing that I've got no interest in. And I want to be in the world of Acid Jazz and, you know, Talking Loud and um, Dorado and, you know, all the, all those labels and, and that scene. That, that was the scene that I wanted to be in. So um, at school, I was in a few bands uh, along those lines because um, as I say the music teacher was incredibly um, uh, 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 encouraging of that and then outside of school I was in this band called du Double Vision <clears throat> uh, who were on acid jazz and I was doing that thing you know the sort of uh, British jazz acid jazz explosion you know of that time that was the scene that I was in and was that or presumably that was live and recording as well uh, yeah, I, I only did a bit of recording with with dub, Double Vision, but it, it was mainly live. You know, do you, so remember, again, do you remember your first time in a recording studio? I do. It was to tape. It was Ernie McCone, uh, the bass player. Uh, it was his studio in uh, Crouch End, uh, and it was on Boogie Back Records. There you go. Which was uh, which was uh, McCone's thing, and it was with Double Vision, um, and. I remember it was sort of like it, it was it was he'd done a sort of house conversion, um, but it still looked it still was like a house. So I was in sort of the sitting room and the control room was upstairs and there was like a video screen, a bit like the iPad that I'm looking mm. at now. And I could see them up in the control room. We couldn't talk mm. as such, but, you know, it was all visual signals. Um, and yeah, it was to tape. And I remember uh, cutting it. And actually, um, the keyboard player in that band was Sasha Scarbeck. Oh, wow. Um, exactly. Uh, and I, I remember going up to the control room and listening to him do a road take and then they were sort of splicing it. They were cutting, you know, actually mm. cutting tape, mm. which is, you know, an anathema to anybody who's sort of, you know, learning studio techniques now. Um, yeah, that, that was my first sort of, this is going to be released, you know, and I remember going to the record store and getting it when it was released and just walking down the street, looking at this, this tangible thing with my name on it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I think a lot of people that um, I've spoken to, they, uh, it becomes very, we can become quite complacent about it. I think it's amazing yeah. when, you know, the first, first record that you see with your name on it, the first time mm. you hear something you've done on the radio. Yeah. It's yeah, an yeah. inexplicable thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it is extraordinary. And, and, and I feel very sad that um, now, as much as streaming has lots of upsides, and it's opened the doors to a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily get a traditional label deal or whatever. 
but you know you're losing that idea of credits you know the, the reason why we all have this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of engineers producers mixers studios even is because we spent our days pouring over uh label notes mm. and you know uh, uh record sleeves and there's you know i know these obscure session musicians from the 60s and 70s because i you know i read their names a lot yeah and we just don't have that now it's i i, I think that's a real shame so you figured out i guess early on that there could be a way of making this your job as in you wouldn't mm. have to get a proper job you could actually just do this for a living yeah i mean i guess i guess teaching was my quote unquote you know job that was yeah um although i do have a, i do have a slight problem with that um you know uh when i was teaching at, at one of the other, the other schools as i got a bit older and students would come to me and say oh you know i need some money i'm going to start teaching and I just have a slight issue with the idea that either A, teaching is lesser than, you know, um, or B, it's something that you should just do for the money. And then when you don't need the money, you toss it aside. Because ultimately, I wouldn't be sat here today talking to you or sat in front of you playing the drums if it wasn't for the teachers that I had and the responsibility that we have with people's lives as educators I think is quite an extraordinary thing. And it's something that should not be taken for granted. Um, and there's, you know, as a drummer, if I'm playing to an audience of 20,000, you know, what is the percentage of people that I will touch in that room? You know, emotionally, that's what I mean, obviously. Yes. Um, but, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm actually having a direct impact on these people's lives. Um, and that's something... Um, I, I, I know I'm digressing here, but, you know, I feel like, you know, people go, oh, yeah, you know, I talk for a bit, but actually I want to do this. Well, you know, I get it, uh, but teaching is, is, is an extraordinary thing. So I sort of felt like I was, yes, that was very much a part of, teaching was very much a part of my career at that point. You know, it was running concurrently with whatever, you know, live stuff I, I was doing. So what was the first thing that you did where you kind of ventured a little away from your comfort zone of the acid jazz thing and you moved into a slightly different style, whether it be more pop or more, more rock? Yeah, well, so um, again, it was another sort of moment where the rug was absolutely pulled from under my feet. I was working with this band called Sojourn and they were absolutely my band you know it was it was you know it was my people they were my friends we were we were going ahead together it was you know this acid jazz sort of thing brit soul kind of thing and <clears throat> at that point you know i had i'd had some lessons obviously and i was teaching but to a large degree um if i had a good gig i didn't know why and if i had a bad gig I didn't know why. So there was no consistent, there, there was no sort of clarity with what I was doing. Um, and I got fired. I got fired from Sojourn. And it was literally, it was the end of my world. I was 18 um, <clears throat> and I just didn't know what to do. You know, it, it was the end for me. It was worse than any sort of breakup uh, with a girlfriend or whatever. Um, and I spoke to uh, to one of my best friends at the time, and he said uh, he he was teaching at uh, this um, uh, school, uh, uh, the Bass Institute or Bass Tech, I think it was called. Um, and and he said, 
come and have some lessons. Come, come and study. So um, I went to a place called Drum Tech and I studied with a guy called Paul Elliott. And from being in that space, <clears throat> um, about six, seven months maybe into having lessons, they asked me to teach there. Um, so again, that started a whole other um, sort of ed educational path. But I met some great people and I, uh, I met who to this day is, is one of my mentors, uh, Mark Roberts. And he <clears throat> uh, was asked to do this band, um, which was uh, um, Jamie Hintz's uh, thing. So Jamie Hintz, who is now The Kills. Um, and Mark couldn't do it. So he asked me to do it. Um, and Jamie is just the most extraordinary musician. Um, he thinks on, on another level. And, you know, it's weird. He wouldn't think this, but it was so fusion. There were like five, four, seven, eight, you know, like it was extraordinary. The drummer on it, drummer and producer was Jeremy Stacey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another sort of great, well, I mean, he's just an all-rounder, but, you know, I knew him from playing jazz music. Um, but it was really super, just extraordinary uh, uh, out there music. And that completely, that was completely out of my comfort zone. Um, and the keyboard player was supposed to be Narina Pallet. Yeah. But she was out, she was out doing some, something else. Um, and uh, that, that was just, you know, I turned up to this like proper indie gig with, you know, this aqua blue tiny uh, uh, drum kit. I mean, like shiny cymbals, you know, I wouldn't do anything like that today, but that was the only kit I had, you know, and it was like a sort of jazz funk kit. I mean, it was horrendous, um, but we did it. And it was, it was one of the best experiences musically I've, I've had. It was fantastic, you know, and that, that was about a year. And again, you know, we were doing these crazy things. Like I was uh, reading about the band in like, NME and stuff, you know, magazines that I'd never read before. And we were doing, um, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, oh God, uh, John Peel sessions and, you know, things like that. Totally not, not in my wheelhouse at all. So would it be fair to say that your first step into the more commercial world would have been around the time that you first met with Lucy Silvers? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, <clears throat> um, I had done... Um, a couple of things that were sort of more um, singer-songwritery, I yeah. think you, you could say. I mean, look, <clears throat> I, at that point, uh, uh, in terms of my age and my career, I really was just playing music, yeah. you know, and I sort of didn't, I didn't feel that I could uh, uh, afford to specialise yet. So as long as I hadn't been pigeonholed into a scene that precluded me from going anywhere else. You know, if someone asked me to play, I would do my very best, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, uh, I, I was doing a sort of couple of singer-songwritery things. But again, you know, um, Lucy was absolutely a serendipitous, you know, sliding doors thing. I was supposed to do um, a session for this really flaky singer guy. And he booked me for two days and um, on the day. So I booked the time off teaching at the school and on the day he canceled. And it was a really, I remember it was a really rain. It was pissing down with rain. 
And I was really annoyed. I basically, I'd lost the session and I'd lost getting paid from the school. Um, so I went to my studio to do some practice and I was sort of, you know, playing away, just trying to get rid of the aggression. And I had a phone call saying, what are you up to? And I was like, well, you know, supposed to be doing this, but I'm not doing anything now. And um, can you come down and audition for this girl, Lucy Silvers at Music Bank? Can you get down to, to, to Bermondsey? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. Um, and uh, turned up. Um, there, there was another band there already. It was super awkward, but anyway, that's a, it's a whole other issue. Um, played um, and getting the gig. And, you know, I, the people that I met doing Lucy, you know, changed my life com completely, you know, put, put me on the path to where we are now, basically. So from Lucy Silvers, who is um, an extraordinary, uh, incredible artist, but as you say, singer-songwriter, yeah. how do mm. you go from that to playing drums with the biggest girl band on the planet at the time, which is Girls Aloud? Um, do you mean sort of how did that happen or, 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 or musically, well, was there like, any, where do you go? Well, no, just kind of where do you, it, again, was that a thing that you were playing, you, you said you were playing drums for lots of people. Was that literally mm. someone said, oh, he's good. Why don't you try well, him out? And then you're in so, the band. Yeah. So, so Lucy, um, um, we did a lot from like 2004. Well, all, yeah, probably 2004 to 2007, really. But um, she had she had a couple of uh, um, sort of personnel uh, changes, and one of the people who uh, played in Lucy's band was Dave Tench, right. um, and uh, he was asked to um, MD Girls Aloud, and he asked me to do that with him. Um, so. Um, that was that was an incredible band. That was Pete Martin, incredible bass player. Um, Mutz Hauger was playing guitar and helping Dave with some of the programming stuff. Um, so yeah, it was just it was just the it was just the four of us: uh, Pete, Mutz, me, and, and and Dave. And that was brilliant. You know, that was their first arena tour, and yours, um, and mine, and, and yeah. your and your. I mean, do you well, remember that? It it was my first headline. Thanks. Yeah. Um, okay. But what I mean is that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're for you know. Can you remember anything was, about those those experience? Like the first time oh, that you're on you're on a, an arena tour with the with the biggest pop band at that yeah, time. It absolutely blew my mind. So you know, um, we're in rehearsals and sort of girls allowed walking. Like, what actually is going on? You know, these are these are these these are the faces that I see I've seen on TV. These are the faces that you see in the magazines, and they're right here, and they're very normal, very lovely people. Um, uh, you know, we celebrated Nadine Coyle's 21st birthday on tour. You know, I've got pictures of me at that party and it's sort of, it's, it's, it's carnage. Um, uh, but yeah, no, that, that, uh, I was terrified to a large degree. But, but I do remember that feeling of the first show just clicking in, just do the gig, you know, f focus, do what you know how to do play you've rehearsed you know what you're doing um as long as nothing goes wrong technically or whatever do your thing and i just remember looking out and thinking this is an extraordinary thing what was i thinking just wanting to play ronnie scott's <laughs> yeah <laughs> can you talk a bit about um i mean in general i mean obviously for that but in general can you talk a bit about your process of the moment you get 
the gig and mm. pre-band rehearsal. It doesn't mm. matter who you've got. So whatever the gig is, you're, you're, mm. you know, say if it's a big pop gig, like a Girls Like gig or a Kylie gig, yeah. what is your process once you, once you get the song list and the, the things? Yeah. How do you go about it? Well, so for me, my, my, my process has been the same um, since doing both Fiji with Jamie Hintz and a, a ton of songwriting nights around London when I was a, a lot younger. So my process involves not being caught out in two ways. So firstly, with the songwriter night ex experiences, I remember once the band leader, I got given a bunch of songs and, and I thought I'd seen how they'd done it, you know, how, how the house band had, had done it. And I thought they're just blagging it, it's fine. So I was given the song list I sort of gave it a cursory listen, wrote some cursory charts, but not really. And we were in rehearsal, uh, the sort of soundcheck rehearsal, and I was being absolutely roasted. And the band leader turned around to me at one point and said, um, are we going to sort of play the song at the same tempo that you count it off at, or are we just going to go freeform like you're doing now? Wow. And <laughs> so I was like, this is never happening to me again. I so." The first process for me is I will listen, 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 listen. So the song is everywhere. The song is in my ears when I'm going for a run. The song is in the car. The song is in the house. It's in the kitchen when I'm cooking, whatever. Like I am listening and I'm charting. And when I walk into that room, nobody is telling me anything about these songs. And we'll come to you, Mr. Anderson, and how that you completely threw me. Um, in a minute. Um, but so that's the first thing. And the second thing to do with Jamie Hintz is I'm listening and I'm figuring out what I need. So for me, my drum kit is my costume. It's, it's what I climb into to get into the spirit of the gig, um, you know, method drumming, whatever you want to call it. But I'm not going to get caught out like I did with, with Fiji and, and Jamie Hintz where I'm playing completely the wrong kit. I, I'm, I'm giving off completely the wrong sound. So, you know, to me, um, electronics, which are now absolutely just considered, you have to have something, whether it's like a little uh, 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 SPDS or, you know, uh, just a thing, a little trigger um, unit or pads or whatever, you know, that I'm doing. But to me, they're just, they're just another way to play drums, you know? So, um, I'm thinking about what is the main kit that, that I'm going to have? What, what are the sounds acoustically, but how much will I need ele electronically, you know? Um, so yeah, that's my, my process. Learn it, chart it, get it, just get it down. And then what am I bringing to the, to, to the session to make sure that I'm creating the right sounds from the word go, because you never get that chance to make the first impression again. I think that's really important. And I think it's something that I've said, I don't know, that uh, Adatone and Katie over on the Vocal Code uh, podcast always say, which is day one of rehearsal is not day one of learning. Day one of rehearsal is you should right. be able to play the whole gig. Yeah, um, but it never used to be, did it? I know. This is the thing. It never used to be. Rehearsals used to be rehearsals. Where you learned you know, that, yeah. Where you learned the song. And um, now, absolutely, that's not that's not what it's ex expected to be. You know, you you 100% as you say you should be able to sort of roughly do the gig 
yeah, do the gig and then be able to kind of expand on it, you know? So yes. it's not like, oh, day one, everyone knows everything, we can go home. It's just like that's yeah. the beginning of turning it into, into something. Yeah. You mentioned as well with electronics, and it's obviously something you're very famous for, but I'd imagine what you were talking about earlier with <clears throat> the idea that you were uh, had a mathematical brain that must come mm. in very, very handy for electronics when there are potentially 10 or 11 different mm. sounds per song. Yeah. Pads. Well, so, you know, uh, Girls Aloud had had a bunch of samples and, you know, that, that was my first sort of real foray into um, arena pop and, you know, <clears throat> playing sounds from the record. But the next step really from that uh, was um, the gig that we did together, um, Christoph, um, which, um, you know, we can talk about uh, later on if, if you want, but... You know, that was that was my first real experience of opening up the Pro Tool stems, not me, the MD, opening up the Pro Tool stems, uh, Logic stems, whatever, and going, right, you can't play this because it's a sample that is, it's, we, we can't separate it. Uh, but you can play this, you can play that. Um, so in a way, that sort of changed my process a little bit if, if, if I know that it's a very electronic heavy situation, I will be slightly vaguer in terms of what I'm playing because uh, I've gone into situations thinking I'm going to be playing something when actually I can't because it, that, that can't be separated. So I'm playing something else entirely. Um, so, you know, uh, Christoph, um, the first uh, Kylie tour, you know, Stuart Price, you know, he has, he, he did, didn't he? He had a, a kick um, for the verse, a kick for the pre-chorus, a kick for the chorus, a kick for the re-intro, a kick for the middle eight. You know, so there's no way that I can just have that. Well, there is now, there is now, but back then there was no way that I could have that, you know, on just a kick drum trigger. Um, so, you know, I'd be playing kicks with my hands. I'd be playing all kinds of stuff, you know, just across the kit. It was like the Starship Enterprise. Um, and, you know, people will often say to me, oh, I don't need technique. I don't need this. I don't need that. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. You know, maybe you don't want to play like Billy Cobham or whatever. That's absolutely fine. But me learning um, uh, coordination and independence patterns allows me to play a disco beat, but with the kick drum on my left hand and the snare drum, on, you know, like those things are coming into play in quote unquote, simple pop music and i guess that's something you'd seen or well yes i guess that's something you'd seen people like um andy gangadine do yeah. with madonna yeah yeah, yeah yeah i mean look gangadine um pete lewinson um andrew small um ian thomas actually so ian thomas who's like this sort of jazzer mm. or you know like now playing with mark Knopfler. So the first gig that I ever went to see was the Stones <clears throat> at 11. And then at 13, I went to see Seal at the Brixton Academy. And uh, Ian Thomas was playing drums with Seal. And he had, you know, one of the early sort of D-drum units. And he had pads around his kit. And, you know, it, it, was, it was amazing. You know, and, and that's so, you know, I was seeing it then. And, and, and it, it fascinates me. I mean, the, the problem I have to a certain degree is you know, I'm a bit of a Luddite. But that that thing really excites me. Elec 
electronic drums really excite me and the possibilities really excite me. And you said something about the fact that that you, you get your process and you get your, um, you've got everything written down and you listen to the mm. song and but mm. you mentioned something earlier about the fact that you come in and you're completely prepared and mm. then you said, but then sometimes you can totally <laughs> so, change. So basically the first thing that we did together um, was Christoph Willem and I applied my same process. You sent over the songs and I learned them and I charted them and I remember it was like either the night before we set off to rehearsals or, or the day before that, you like completely changed, like three or four of the songs. Yes. What is going on? Now I realise this is your process, um, that as things change, as requirements change, um, so do arrangements change. And so I learned to chart it, but never be too glued to it because... Ultimately, that was my first foray into, okay, well, you know that 60-second costume change that we thought was going to be cool? No, they haven't even got their pants on, so it needs to be two minutes. Yeah. And so suddenly you're playing a 32-bar intro and a 64-bar, you know, like uh, basically be adaptable. Be <laughs> is, adaptable. Is, is the real key to this, you know. Uh, uh, so whilst my, my, my process is still basically the same, um, I do understand that there are, once you get into bigger um, arenas, and by arenas, I don't mean venues, I mean bigger arenas of, of this industry, there's more people at play. You know, it's not just you and the band and a stage. It's choreography, it's lights, it's a creative director, it's, it's a whole multitude of people. It's the village that's making this whole thing. And it's the pace at which people can get out of a Diamante uh, onesie you know that's that's what we're dealing with brilliantly described <laughs> I think that's, that's that's absolutely brilliantly described so you've you've got all this knowledge uh about the electronic side and you're getting into it but then the kind of next gig and arguably a large part of your career is spent mm. going back to playing a good old-fashioned acoustic kit mm. for for Duffy who started as a very sweet Welsh girl in a black and white video when I remember seeing mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. and became a global sensation. And yeah. were you in there from the very beginning with her? From the very, very, yeah, from day dot, really. So, uh, look, again, this, this is another um, sliding doors moment. This is another moment, um, you know, uh, Girls Aloud was fin had finished. Uh, Lucy was on hiatus. And um, I was sat having coffee with a friend of mine. Um, but prior to that, um, I had agreed to do a gig for Mutz Hauger, the guitarist and programmer in Girls Aloud, for a friend of his um, at this international school in the middle of nowhere in North Wales. Um, and uh, uh, it was for free. You know, can you come and do a favour? Absolutely. Brilliant. Love to. It's a, it's, it's a trip in a van, somewhere different, and uh, with great people. So it was me, Dave, Mutt, and this other guitarist. Um, and did it, didn't think much, much of it. It was fun, you know, we had some, some fun in the van, whatever. Um, fast forward a couple, couple of weeks, and I'm sat with this friend of mine, um, having coffee going, well, 
Girls Aloud is done. Lucy's done for a bit. What am I going to do? Phone rings, number I don't re recognise. Classic, let it go to voicemail. Um, I'm walking back. Um, hi, Tom, this is Toby. Uh, we did the gig together a couple of weeks ago. I've been asked to put a band together for this girl called Duffy. Um, apparently she's going to be pretty big. Um, so we've got a week's rehearsal. And I was like, okay, week's rehearsal, great. I'll, I'll take it. I was cynical enough at the time to think, Ugh, you know, I've heard they're going to be massive like a hundred times before, whatever. I'll, but but it's a it's a week's rehearsal. I'll do it. Um, and so they were recording and still writing actually uh, the first album when we were in rehearsals. And a week turned into two weeks, and then um, it was like a week every month. Um, then it got to a point that the that the you know the album was pretty much done. You know, I remember being in rehearsal and. We were playing all this sort of very Bernard Butlery stuff, and it was very cool and very, again, very indie, very hip. And then uh, they brought in this song that finished the album, and it was Mercy. Um, and I thought, oh, this is rubbish. <laughs> I was like, this is really pop. This is this is not, you know, we've been playing this sort of real, you know, uh, 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 retro, cool. You know, Bernard Butler done some great stuff on it. Um, and this is just really pop, you know, fast forward like a month and boom, away we go. And so, yeah, you know, uh, we were doing it from when, you know, she could walk down the street and no one would know who, who she was. And it was an exciting time. And then we did uh, we did a, a, an acoustic tour, me, the guitarist and uh, Duffy supporting um, Duke's. Uh, Duke Spirit, Duke Special, Duke Special, Duke Special. Always get those two mixed up. Sorry, Ollie, if you listen to this. Um, uh, around Ireland. Then we did Later with the band. Then there was another sort of uh, acoustic tour. And then beginning of 2008, boom, good night, God bless. She was away and off and running. Um, and yeah, that was that was just, you know, playing drums. I I... I try and think of every, everything as just playing drums, you know, whether it's like a drum kit or it's a pad, you know, I guess, look, there is a difference when you're playing piano as to when you're playing a, a keyboard, hmm. but it's, you're, you're still trying to create melodies. Yeah. You know, so I'm just playing on different surfaces. Um, but every time I'm trying to just get into the headspace, but absolutely with, with Duffy, you know, I think if, if I'd have turned up with that blue tiny little kit, she'd have said, get out. You know, mm -hmm. it was, you, you very much had to get into the zone, into the, in, in, into the spirit of it. And do you, did you think that your first experience, because that would have been your first real experience of a global star and yeah. um, doing things like being flown out to America and yeah. playing on American TV and, you know, mm. I presume all that experience. I mean, because as you say, you're just sat in the middle, you're playing drums and your surroundings change. You're still playing drums. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're playing drums in a tiny gig or you're doing it on The yeah. Tonight Show, you're playing yeah. drums. Yeah. I, I imagine a lot of the experiences that you had with her were became very, very useful um, for later on with, with, with how, to, how, to, how to deal with the crazy situations that you are put yeah. in as the drummer behind a very big pop star. Yeah, without, without a doubt. And, you know, <clears throat> some of the, some of the things that I've done subsequently, um, 
you sort of, you don't take for granted, but you sort of think, okay, we can do this. Let's, let's put, let's put the blinkers on. Let's, let's not worry about how many hundred thousand people or tens of the, or whatever it is. You just put the blinkers on and you do, do the gig. But with Duffy, there was always the feeling that at the beginning we were in this together, you know, and if you made a mistake, it didn't mean you were fired. You know, it was a learning curve. Um, I do find with some artists, they are just extraordinarily quick to learn. And, you know, some of the things that, 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 that Duffy did, you wouldn't know that it was the first time. She just, she just had it. She absolutely, she had that star quality. When she was in a room, you knew she was in a room, you know? Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that cannot be taught. That, you know, that is actually the X factor. And that is, you know, that is something that, that you're not going to, you know, it can't be mentored. You either, you absolutely either have it or you don't. Um, and people like Duffy, you know, I, I remember being in a room uh, rehearsing for the first ever thing we did, I did with Kylie. And, you know, I'd done some things and whatever. Great, it's Kylie's fantastic. And then hearing like, she's 20 minutes out, she's 10 minutes out, she's in the car park, she's coming in. And then this person walks in and it's like the queen has come in, you know, and you get that sensation, that feeling if you're meeting her for the very first time. And that's the thing, those, those people. But having had those experiences with Duffy absolutely set me up um, for then, you know, working with someone like Kylie, working with someone as we did, like Leona Lewis or whatever, you know, those star quality people. Um, I've sort of, yeah, I've sort of done that. And so let's just focus on the music. Let's just, let's just make the show as, as best it, it can be. Okay, well, as as you as you brought her up, um, <laughs> I mean, yes, you, you mentioned that. Um, obviously, we met um, a, a friend of ours, Sarah DeCourcy, who had recommended um, you to uh, to actually uh, to audition for something. And for a long time, you were you were unavailable because you were with Duffy. Mm. But eventually, you were available and and were able to spend some time with us in Paris mm. Um, mm. with the. Uh, the legend that is Deshaun Abrahams, uh, yeah. bass player, and uh, yeah. and and yeah, some great people on that tour. Um, and you know, it was it wasn't in any way a sort of audition. Um, I don't think because I think it would, you could have walked into the Kylie gig anyway. Um, mm. But it just the timing was quite good, and we had some fun. Yeah. So so it did get to the point that the the time when you were sat in that rehearsal room um, mm. when the Queen walked in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been for the kind of one-off. Was that the one-off corporate show in Cairo? No, that was Jonathan Ross. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, look, you know that that whole thing. Um, I, I was on a retainer with Duffy, and you know I was asked to audition for Christoph, and um, as is always the way when you don't need something, you get it. Yeah, you know. Um, I didn't need it. I was retained by Duffy. I was with Duffy. And then, uh, you know, this was six weeks. It was six weeks, wasn't it? It was like a, like mm. a two-week rehearsal yeah. and then a month tour. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this. And in the second week of rehearsal, I get a phone call from Duffy's new manager. You know, um, we're going in a different direction. Thanks very much. Uh, you know, so long. And thanks for all the fish. And, um, you know, like, oh, well, I'm really pleased that I actually did 
say yes to Christoph. Mm. And that that gig, Christoph turned out to be a year long thing. Yes, you know, and a wonderful experience. But you know, got us here here right now. You know, if I'd have said no, and no, I'm I'm going to stick stick to the stick to the retainer, and you know, blah blah blah. Well, you know, who knows what would have happened? But I've had an extraordinary 11, 12 years. Um, thanks very much. You know, um, but yes, it it. it, it you say it wasn't an audition, and it wasn't. I know, but look at look at what we were doing with with Christoph. It was sort of a, it was sort of um, the perfect um, plan, really. It was electronics. It was it was pop music in big arenas. Um, it, 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 it those skills just transferred. You know, myself and Deshaun, we just transferred very neatly. Mm. into Kylie, you know. Well, especially into Aphrodite, I suppose, because of Correct. the electronic yeah. side. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But, you know, it's, it's, I suppose, look, I've been pigeonholed a few times and I'm, I'm very pleased to have been pigeonholed uh, a few times because it means I'm being asked to do different things and, you know, that I, I feel very privileged. But I suppose now, um, if I'm being asked to do things, it's probably with an eye, with a view of there's going to be some electronics involved. Um, I, I mean, I, can, I can't really think of much that I've done recently. Maybe Will Young. And that was terrifying, actually, in itself, because I was suddenly going from all, you know, 90% electronics to all drums and remembering how to play drum fills again and, you know, actually lead the band dynamically from that point of view was pretty terrifying because I hadn't done it for a long time. Um, you know, cause for me playing electronics and electronic music is about creating a spell. And one of the things that pisses me off more than anything is when that spell is broken just to play drums, you know, just to like play a drum fill. Why, why, why are you playing that drum fill? And also if you're playing a drum fill, why are you playing baked bean cans? Because if you listen to the music, if you listen to the record, you know, I'm not sure when the last time an eight inch Tom Tom was recorded in anger and then released, mm. you know, um, minimum, you're looking at like a, a 12 inch rack Tom, a pretty sort of Motown sized rack Tom. That's, that's the highest it, sh it should go personally. You always say as well that your job principally um, is to make people dance as in, absolutely you know don't i mean embellish and yeah. give it energy but yeah. you're there to make sure that people can dance absolutely and you know if you listen uh if you listen to uh some stuff and i i'm not going to name name you know like just as a broad as as a broader example the bigger the room the bigger the brush stroke right mm. so the more complex stuff from a drummer's point of view that you're playing, it's getting lost. It's getting lost in the room. And all that's happening is you've got groove, 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 groove. You've got this break where people go, what just happened? And the spell is broken. Mm. And there's nothing that frustrates me more because you've got this whole room, whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people, you've got these this thing that has become like an amoeba-like 
uh, uh, shape. Everyone's moving together. Everyone's doing the same thing. What, you know, I've, I and my rhythm section people have created this thing that is making people move. And then I decide I'm just going to break that spell with a rap tom. Like, why? Why, why, why? It, it, it frustrates me more than anything. Yeah, but it, I guess it's down to a choice. And I guess... Um... I think it's down to confidence, actually. Yeah. I, I, I do, because I think it's, it's very easy to second guess and play for other musicians. You know, if you're the bass player, you'll be playing for the bass players in the room. If you're the guitar, you know, rather than playing for the artist that you're playing with, what I want is the artist to turn around. Or actually, I don't want the artist to turn around. <laughs> uh, you know, Keith Richards once was asked, what does he look for in a drummer? And Keith Richards said, never to look at him. Yeah. I know he's there, but he's doing his thing. And that's yeah. it. And in a way, one of the worst things that can possibly happen is someone come up to you and say, oh, man, you sounded great tonight. Blah, you know, it's like, well, you probably shouldn't have noticed me in a way. Mm. You know, I, there's, it's probably, there's probably more nuance to it than that. But, you know, actually, I just want to be a part of this sonic picture that, that, you know, I don't want to stick out, especially in electronic music. I don't want to stick out. No, absolutely. And I think that's, it's often been said, um, I know, um, especially of myself and possibly other um, people that do my job that, you know, when I'm listening to something, if it's all going, I, I tend to only react when I hear something that's a bit wrong. Right. You know, I'm one of these people that I, it's, it, I do compliment people, but it's usually, you know, if all of a sudden my head goes or an eyebrow mm -hmm. goes or something, everyone mm -hmm. goes, ah, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Cause mm -hmm. you just, yeah. you just, yeah. So I think, I think that's right. What, um, I mean, everyone knows Kylie Minogue as a live performer, as a pop star and everything. Mm. Can you talk a bit about what, what she brings uh, to a room, maybe like a rehearsal room as an artist? Um, so the thing about her, and I think the thing about truly great artists is, this will sound very simplistic, but they bring themselves, right? It's, it's very pure and it's very simple. Um, when, um, when we were in that room uh, rehearsing for Jonathan Ross, um, and she walked in, she put her ears in, she stood in front, in front of the microphone and she started singing. It was Kylie. It, 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 the, it you know, there was no adornment. There was no uh, plugins. It was Kylie. That's what she sounded like. And so first of all, you're thinking, you know, man, all these records that I've heard and, you know, all these like, it's her. It's actually her. Um, and then everything, again, when you're working with a great artist, it comes from the top down, good or bad. You know, if, if, if it's a really negative experience, if, it's, if things are just tough and, and, and tricky, you know that it's from the top down. But if it's great and it's a wonderful room and it's a wonderful working environment, the same applies. And I think for her, she, she doesn't suffer fools. But as long as what you're doing doesn't impact her performance negatively, she loves to have fun and she loves to laugh and she loves to make that space as effective 
um, and uh, 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 what's the word? Um, you know, get the most out of it, but also make sure that people have a fun experience while they're there. Um, and that's, you know, you don't get people working with you for 25 years if that isn't the case. That's, that's always what I say to people when, when they say, what's it like working with Carly? I say, well, you know, would people stay there for 25 years if it wasn't a great experience? No, of course they wouldn't. Because, yeah. you know, the, the, the people that are in and around that environment are the best of the best. They could go and work with anybody. They do, you know, in the, in the, in the off periods, they go and work with, you know, other extraordinary people. So for me, um, there's always that thing of you want to do your best. You want to do your best for yourself. You want to do your best for her and you want to make the whole thing work. But at the same time, um, you know that she's got your back. I think if you want to, if you want to try some things, you know, um, she wants it to be as creative as possible. Yeah, I agree with that. It's that hardworking, but gracious. Yeah. Um, and thing. it's, it's the same with Will Young. Will Young, you know, he, he's got the most extraordinary ears, you know, he's hearing what I'm playing on the hi hat, And if he likes it, you know, but it, it's right. If he doesn't like it, he'll tell you, but you sort of think, well, at least he's listening. Mm. You know, at least he's got that view and he is hundred percent got the band's back. Like go for it, go for it, try some stuff, go off on a tangent. And if it doesn't work, he will tell you, but he's giving you that space to try it. You never feel hemmed in. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit about your, you've talked a bit about your rehearsal and the prep for the rehearsal and the, mm. the rehearsal itself. And the fact that obviously once you come out of a band rehearsal on a very big show, you go into production rehearsal, which isn't really about you. It's about everybody else and the dancers yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about your pre-show ritual? Because <laughs> having witnessed it a few times, um, yeah. it, I've, and specifically, although you don't have to talk about this one specifically, but the one that really I remember specifically is, is something like Glastonbury mm. is it's fun, 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 fun. Mm. And then it goes very quiet. Can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, what I try to do before a show is to visualise that show. Um, and it was something that uh, I told you, my, my friend uh, Mark, um, he, he said to me once that he'll sit and almost do the whole show in his head before the show happens. So that when he's walking up the stairs to the stage, there's no shocks, there's no oh, this is for the first time, you know? So I will just um, sit and think about, you know, how we're getting up on stage, what that first click is going to sound like, um, what my first movement is, is, is going to be, um, when the artist is going to enter, those kind of things. Um, but these days, I also like to, and it didn't always be, it, it wasn't always the case, but... Um, I like to try and be as physically warm as possible. So um, if I can find a space to be, I will go there. But if not, the boys will just have to deal with the fact that I'm sat in the corner of the room um, tapping away on a practice pad. But it's, it's just trying to get into uh, the zone because there's so many, there's so many things going on. Um, and actually, it doesn't really matter the size of the show. It, it can be a club show. 
or it can be an arena show, or it can be Glastonbury. There are so many moving parts and so many people are doing their part of the gig at a different time to you. You know, my, my time to work is two hours from like eight till 10 o'clock. Um, but somebody else's time to work might be 6.30 in the morning till 10.30 in the morning when they're putting the stage up. Um, so all these things are happening. And it's just, I guess, trying to reclaim um, some space uh, to be mine to make sure that when I go onto stage, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, you know, and the, and it's not, I don't know. It's a bit like just hitting that pocket four bars after the song has started. Like you, you want to hit, hit the pocket from beat one. That's the dream. Um, and so for me, I'm trying to hit that zone from the minute the click starts. And what are you listening to? What is, what is in your ears? Obviously, click is is your friend and pretty much all of your yeah. gig but i mean what what do you need to um to, to basically <laughs> inspire you to be able to play the way that you do well you know people people get really like funny and apologetic um when they think i realize for the first time there's not a lot of drums in their innits or, mm. or their mix well i have to tell you the same is <laughs> applicable but in reverse. Um, uh, the difference is, I guess, with me and my particular in instrument is that there's a lot of me going across the stage. Even if, it's a, uh, e even if it's a silent stage, as most pop stages are now with no monitors, um, you're still getting cymbals and stuff, you know, floating across. Um, if it's an electronic song, then you're getting nothing because it's just hit hitting pads. But, you know, I, I don't take offence at it. I don't take offense that there, there isn't a lot of drums in a lot of people's mixes. But for me, in my mix, click is key. Um, I, don't have, I don't have a massive amount of me in my, in my mix. If I am uh, playing electronics mostly, then there'll be a bit more of that because there's nothing, there's nothing I'm not pushing air, so nothing's coming back into, into my ears. Um, but it's mainly keys and whoever is the lead vocal. Mm. And that gets awkward when people talk to me through mics across the stage. I'm like, I've got nothing <laughs> in my ears. Because I just don't want a particularly um, complex and messy mix, you know. And engineers that I work with a lot um, know that. And they start from a very, very bare bones um thing um but it's yeah for me it's like click keys bass vocals lead vocals right that's it you know good i do have a mix of everybody else but it's all very low no no absolutely no no that 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 that's that i totally get that so talking of gigs um it's a really hard question, but everything is about feeling on this podcast. Mm. So can you pick one, one gig that you remember specifically that gave you a, just an almost out of body feeling, an out of world feeling? And it doesn't have to be the biggest one and it could be the smallest mm. one. It could be for so many different reasons. It could be the first one. Mm. But is there one that you just look back? I mean, you've got many, but just the first one that comes to your head where you're sat there playing drums going, yeah. God, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it is 
it is actually the big ones that that stick out because they're generally more of an occasion i think mm. you know um but i think for me um hyde park 2015 mm. with kylie um it was the first festival run that i'd done with her and it was kind of the the pinnacle of it and it was just an extraordinary you know in my hometown um beautiful summer's night um people that i knew and loved in the audience and uh the final song um i look round to my right and in the in the wings is uh uh mel with um a 3 year old ellie in her arms you know waving at me and just it was it, I, that that was a really special special moment to see a sea of faces what was it like 80,000 people um all loving on Kylie and loving on us and then looking around and seeing you know that it's sort of that's what it's all about that 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 was a huge high for me i think amazing that's uh Yeah, that was an incredible show as well. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful show. You know, ev everything went right. Everything went right. Yeah, and like the next Hyde Park, but that's, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> so, if someone's listening to this, um, they probably haven't started playing violin that was <laughs> smashed and turned them into a drummer. But um, mm. I'm sure they'll look at your career and and I think you've given so many brilliant. Uh, examples of how fate mm. plays a part in it um and you know what i've con continually said is you know sometimes the moments when you lose something an opportunity mm -hmm. um something else is around the corner but mm. it's a very different world to the one you grew up in but you know mm. do you have any advice for someone coming up wanting to have a similar career to you yeah i mean look The one thing I would say to my younger self is stop worrying because um, I, I worried and worry still that how many more of those one door closes, another one opens moments can you have? You know, as I was thinking about what we were doing today, as I said to you, you know, I realized there's been a lot of them. Um, and I sort of think, well, you know, how, how many can one person have? But you'll have as many as it takes, you know, stop worrying. Um, I think a lot of people fret and try and pursue very early on the idea of who they are and what they are. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of, of specializing. Well, I think especially today, because as you say, it's a very different world to the one that I grew up in. Do what's in front of you. You know, make decisions based on what is in front of you. Um, you know, I'd love to make records all the time, but that's not necessarily the world we're in. So I'm not just going to say, oh, guys, I can't do that eight-month tour because I, I need to be at home just in case the record comes along. You know, you have to work with what's in, in front of you at the time. And as you go along, you will figure out what you are and who you are and what you bring to the table. And the time 
that I got, uh, I, I don't say the most compliments, but the time that people started enjoying what I was doing was when I played more what I wanted to hear in that environment, as opposed to second guessing what other drummers would play and what other drummers would want to hear. Because that is who you are. You, you know, already you are who you are. Just make sure that you play from an, an, an honest place and that will take you in, into different places and different rooms with different people. And eventually you will figure out what it is that you bring to the table, you know. Um, what I what I try and bring to any room I'm in is making people feel comfortable because it's whether you're Kylie or whether you're, you know, Kylie to come in 10 years time, it's pretty intimidating being in a room full of people making a lot of noise. So, you know, what I try and do is just make sure that people are as comfortable and happy in that environment as it's possible to be. Um, and if that means making a fool of myself, so be it. If that means the gags are at my expense, so be it. But let's, you know, let's create a space where people can just feel like they can fall over and it's okay. Brilliant. Don't think it don't think gets any better than that. That's fantastic advice. Yeah. Um, you obviously had a little bit of a, a relaxing time over the last few months as a few people have <laughs> but yeah. um if i know you you've still been listening you've still been prepping you've still been mm. practicing there's no yeah. time no. that you can't do that and no. uh ready for i mean we were lucky enough to have you uh with us for a, a tiny little gig at the mm. last year with marisha wallace at the jazz cafe yeah. which was just you playing a tiny little drum kit yeah. Um, yeah without having to worry about 11 bass drums yeah. and <laughs> and as you say you you're just playing drums. Uh, the drums, surroundings yeah. change. The surroundings yeah. change. The people in front of you change. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're just at the back playing drums, yeah. doing the best job you can. Yeah, exactly. You know, which so, changes depending on, you know, <laughs> how much I've been practicing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, listen, I think we, we, we you know, we, we have come through an odd time. But ultimately, as Thelonious Monk said many years ago, always be ready. Because you know, you you never know. I've just come back from a wonderful week in the studio, and if I'd have sat for the last few months going, "Yeah, don't worry about it. I'll practice when something happens," you know, I was I was as comfortable working in that studio then as I would have been two years ago when everything was in full flow. Yeah, always be ready. Always be ready. Always be ready. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you as an actual human in the flesh quite soon. Please God by you. And uh, yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.